Welcome back to Survival Matters, a podcast about surviving and flourishing in the 21st century. I'm Mark, your host from Australia 21. We are an independent, not-for-profit public policy think tank that does research on the critical social, environmental, economic and national security issues facing Australia. Last session, we spoke with Hannah Ford about the crucial leading role that young people play in addressing climate change. In this session, we are speaking with Professor Fiona Stanley on how unsustainable living impacts the well-being of a society. Fiona is a maternal and child health epidemiology and public health expert. Over the course of her career, Fiona has spent her time researching the causes behind birth defects and early childhood illnesses. Named Australian of the Year in 2003, Fiona is a vocal advocate for the needs of children and their families. Fiona is the founding director of the Telethon Kids Institute, established in Perth in 1990. Upon retirement as the director in 2011, the Telethon Kids Institute had grown to over 500 staff and students. And she's here with us now. Thanks for joining us, Fiona. Thank you very much. Uh, Fiona, can you please tell our listeners about your history researching child health and the effect that increased consumption has on the prevalence of childhood illnesses? I'm an epidemiologist. I have been committed to getting the best data that I can on the total population, and I'm very interested in the unpacking the causal pathways into uh, child health problems um, and uh, getting the best data I can uh, for for that uh, research. Um, And the whole idea of doing that, of course, is to find out in those pathways where is the most important areas for prevention. And the effect of increased consumption on the problems in child health are considerable and they come from what increased consumption actually means. And increased consumption and a focus on wealth creation uh, rather than on how the society is served by a budget or getting uh, money uh, to the people that need it is that we've had a huge increase in inequalities. And one of the most damaging thing for child health and wellbeing is inequality. So we've had an increase in marginalised families and marginalised children and I think that uh, that has been one major impact on on child health, child mental health, adolescent health, adolescent mental health and and health. The other thing of course is that um, the changes brought about by excessive consumption and a focus on consumption have included things like environmental degradation, climate change, Uh, all of the things that in fact are impacting now on uh, not just the mental health of young people but things like infectious diseases, excessive heat, all of the things that are now being found out about why um, climate change is important for the health and well-being of children. So what health risks does climate change and environmental degradation pose for young people and those yet to be born if nothing is done? Well, it's huge, and I think it's increasing. I think the major problems relate to the fact that uh, both climate change and environmental degradation work within communities, not just rural communities, but in cities uh, where the vast majority of families live. And what's happening in those communities uh, and in those families within either urban centres or in rural um, Australia is that the community has started to fall apart. Now the thing that's most important for family health and well-being and therefore the health and well-being of children, particularly those as you say not yet born, is to have a a very supportive and nurturing community. So what's happened with this excessive consumption, 
the, the impacts of that on climate change and waste production, environmental degradation, is how it's impacting upon families within communities to be able to handle how they parent and how they provide for their children in a whole host of ways, which are not, not related to health, but to education and to getting appropriate community support and nurturing around this next generation of young people. And if you've got a community that's basically unable to cope with the changes in terms of climate or environment, then there's mental health in the parents. Now we know that mental health problems in the parents is one of the biggest risk factors for problems in the child. It's a big risk factor for child maltreatment. It's a big risk factor for the mental health of that, that child. And so these are intergenerational problems that we're seeing with the damaging effects of climate change and environmental degradation. So Fiona, when we hear about the government talk about growth, they usually refer to the GDP. Why is GDP as a single measure of a successful society bad for the long-term success and development of such societies? And what other alternatives do we have? Well, this is a really fantastic question because GDP as a single measure of success has driven many developed and most developing countries to pursue a very damaging neoliberal conservative agenda. Now, that has been, um, in a way, the thing that's caused most of the problems that are affecting our societies today. So, in fact, rather than GDP being a measure of success, focusing as a singular driver on how we succeed as a society has actually driven this inappropriate wealth creation, the over-exploitation of our resources, such as coal and gas and oil, which are, of course, very damaging uh, to, our, to our health and well-being and damaging to the environment. And when you've got a society that is basically saying, well, wealth creation is what we're going for, shareholder profits are what we're going for, then we don't have uh, societies that are able um, to care for each other. We don't have societies that are educating and giving health services to all of the society because the wealth is sequestered in an increasing proportion of high net worth individuals and supposedly this was going to have the trickle down effect and everyone would be raised. I'm afraid a lot of people are now stuck in the mud. So using GDP, which in fact is a very flawed economic measure anyway, you can increase your GDP by selling arms, tobacco, alcohol, bushfires raise GDP. So it, this is not a good measure anyway of a financially successful society but what it has done has driven this very bad inequalities uh, which are affecting our society in a very, very negative way. Uh, and uh, we do have other alternatives. We can now measure well-being. There's an international movement now run by the OECD to measure well-being, health, education, equality, sustainable futures, and many countries are now following this agenda. For example, New Zealand is now going to uh, give the first budget in about in a couple of months' time, the first budget, which will be a budget based on well-being rather than on GDP. In Italy, they've got a future sustainable Italy. Um, of course, Bhutan has a happiness index. Uh, and Wales has a what kind of Wales do we want, where the people have been asked about what future they want. And, and GDP does not even come in uh, to that set of measures.
What does the idea that individual wealth creation benefits everyone miss out on when it comes to promoting the success of our society? Well, we've touched on this already, but when you have got a focus on uh, making wealthy people wealthier, um, then uh, what happens is that these people have immense power. And so I think that people who are the most powerful and influential voices in decision-making, influencing our political judgments, uh, are the people who stand to gain from the short-term wealth in the resulting decisions that they're lobbying for. And many of these global corporations and wealthy individuals are actually about government, but they also lobby government, and science on the whole is thrown out the window. Why is it that a Labour government in Queensland is supporting an Adani coal mine? The only reason I can think of, given the current situation where all the science is saying we have to leave coal in the ground, is that somehow they have been influenced by a corrupt company, that's Adani, or other miners, to actually uh, get this project off the ground, with a, with a sort of very badly argued case that this was for job creation. Um, and so that's at the expense of what's going to happen to our climate and to our environment. And, and so individual wealth creation by itself has not resulted in benefits for everyone. In fact, it has been benefits for the few and many, many more now missing out. And therefore, this has led to a, a, a great mistrust among society of our decision makers who are being influenced by these high net worth individuals and these corporations. And so there's a lot of cynicism. Look at the Banking Royal Commission. You know, they, 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 they are serving their shareholders rather than the people whose money they have taken. So I think there's a sense now of a great sense of distrust and anguish that this individual wealth creation, driven by a singular GDP, driven by this, uh, um, this greed in our society, has not benefited um, the success um, of, of our society. In fact, I think at the moment uh, we seem to be in a, a, a dire situation because of that. How do you think scientific evidence is currently fitting into political conversation and decision making? Of course, as a scientist, the thing that has been most devastating for me is the denigration of science and the rejection, particularly of the climate change science and what that's done for progressing this whole area. Now, if you throw science out the window, which happens when you politicise things, um, anything from climate change, environmental degradation, Aboriginal voice, <laughs> right through to early childhood and all those things, they've become politicised. When they become politicised, the science doesn't get a look in. Now, how crazy is it for governments not to take on board the best evidence that we have to make decisions? What are you then going to make decisions on? Anecdote? What you, ideology? This is not the way to go. We must actually get science absolutely up there, right in the middle, to guide decision-making for our nation. Thinking of health and happiness specifically, what impact does increasing consumption have on these? Well, of course, people are pushed uh, to say by uh, advertising and so on that health and happiness will come if you buy this thing or you wear these clothes or you have this car or you have this house and so on. Now, it's just not sustainable. It is not sustainable. So not everyone can increase their consumption and buy the house, the car, the clothes, the shoes, etc. And so there's this now big discontent between those 
the haves and the haves not in our society. And a lot of that has been very detrimental to the health and well-being of many people in the population. And I think that push for increasing consumption, which is driven by wealth creation, and the fact that people want to succeed uh, in terms of business, rather than saying, what is it that we can do to actually increase the health and happiness of our society? And it ain't, let me tell you, selling more Coca-Cola to kids, or alcohol to their parents, or uh, pushing for very, very uh, expensive clothes, which whose who, way of making them is actually detrimental to the whole chain of people who provided the material for them. So there's this, if you unpack these chains that lead to increased consumption, at every phase of them, there is a negative impact on the health and happiness of the people, both those who are creating the goods, but also the people to whom they're being sold. And there's a sense that it also, the, that the wealthy people in our society are not necessarily <laughs> that, that happy either. Um, there's a, an interview done with a group of CEOs from very big companies and corporations to say they feel quite depressed and lonely, um, and it, you know, that for them it might not be um, fantastic either. So I, I do think that this excessive uh, push to consume goods that we don't particularly need for health and happiness is being very detrimental. Fiona, how can empowering the voices of First Nations people help with human survival and flourishing? When the Uluru Statement from the Heart came out in, uh, in Australia last year, it was the most extraordinary process of going around with great debates and meetings around for all the First Nations people to get almost a consensus, which is extraordinary. Why do we demand a consensus of the diverse Aboriginal people? We don't have a consensus amongst non-First Nations, but we've demanded that they had one. And they basically delivered for us. They delivered an Uluru Statement from the Heart, which asked for a voice, it asked for a treaty, and it asked for an acknowledgement of history of what had happened with colonisation. And it was beautifully written, it wasn't threatening, and it was totally rejected by the Turnbull government. Now, we've got quite a lot of data, and it's not just our data in Australia, but from First Nations in Canada and America, to show that if you give First Nations people a voice in terms of what you do for their health and their education and their uh, communities and their culture and their access to land, all those things, not only does their individual health improve and the services to them are accepted because they're run by Aboriginal people, but their whole well-being improves. Suicide rates in young adolescent um, First Nations people are improved if there, if there is Aboriginal control of services. I mean, this is big stuff. But the thing that's also very exciting is that when you go out on country with First Nations people, they know about that land. They know about what's happened to they know about fire. They know about how you control. They know about, in fact, a whole lot of benefits of eating certain plants and the way you conserve water. They actually understand about how you hunt sustainably, how you actually don't abuse the land. Now, what could be more important for us at the moment than have, having an understanding of that for our own human survival on this planet? but to look at what First Nations people have known for 60,000 years, oral histories, accurately passed down for 60, 70, 80,000 years in Australia, where these people have survived in pretty well harmony with an amazing, you know, environments, two ice ages, megafauna, and now 
in an environment where they've been colonised almost to extinction, and yet they still want to share with us this knowledge. And I think the wisdom of the First Nations elders is crucial for us, and also will be great for them. If we acknowledge them as the owners of this survival knowledge, how good would they feel that they are part, not just they are First Nations, but they are First Nations who are valued. Why is it vital for young people to take ownership of issues surrounding increased consumption in society? And how can it affect our future as a species if nothing is done? I think it's really hard for young people because what we have done as a, a group um, of my age, I'm a baby boomer, um, born in 1946, and it's been that period from the post-war through to now in which this excessive, uh, you know, on, on, on wealth creation and on commercialisation and exploitation and making a lot of money out of our resources and that was the most important. And instead of saying, well, what is the best thing we can do to enable our families to thrive, enable our young people to grow well, enable our communities to be strong and caring, and to enable our environments not just to be things of beauty, but that are going to help us survive on this planet. So what has happened is that we have then left a legacy for today's young people, in which they now have to try and take the reins and reverse this juggernaut of excessive wealth creation and consumption and consumerism, which is so very negative. And I think that it is absolutely vital, not only the young people take ownership of these issues, but that we help them, which is why I'm so pleased you asked me to talk. Because if nothing is done to save the environment, to actually reverse climate change, not it, we've got to mitigate now, we've got to stop that those, those activities which are going to push those temperatures up, which are going to make that environment um, uh, degrade. Um, and if we don't do that, we are looking for at a very bleak future, I think. And I am excited by the fact that young people have got the solutions to this, not only in their activism, but in their technology. And if science can come along and start to, you know, look at the renewables industry, Look at what we can do now with battery storage. This is only the beginning. And I think that the young people of this world are not only going to be able to take control and have more political power, one hopes. Look at Senator uh, Jordan Steele-John, uh, a cerebral palsy, 24-year-old, in a wheelchair, a Green Senator in Canberra. He's telling it how it is. He's absolutely inspirational. Inspirational. And he talks about what leadership is required. But it's also encouraging and funding this young group of people who are smart as anything to come up with the solutions to all of these problems that are in our society. And they're going to be solutions about sustainable business and sustainable investment and how you train people to think differently. There'll be PR firms to turn around this thing that all you need to have is a good GDP and your society is good. So there'll be a whole lot of ways in which young people are going to do this, but we have to support them to do it. Fiona, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add as a final word? Um, no, I that, just want to say uh, I am passionate about the health and well-being of young people. Um, I think that we know the pathways into health and well-being for children and young people. What we have to do is to convince our governments that investing in the health and well-being of maternal and child health in the early years 
and the environments in which people are living, particularly supportive communities, these are the most important investment for any nation. And that is what we have to convince our politicians to do. And I will do it till I die. <laughs> but that really is important because the future of any nation is dependent upon a healthy, thinking, intelligent group of people. And all that starts with brain development in utero and in the first eight years of life. So really, really important to get that one right. In this session, we heard from Professor Fiona Stanley about how a drive to consume leads to public health issues. In the next session, we will speak with Ian Dunlop, a former fossil fuel executive, about the need for urgent political change. The Survival Matters podcast has been prepared by volunteers and experts who are passionate about protecting our planet. Urgent action is needed, and we want Australians to listen to these podcasts and discuss the issues with their friends and families. Around the globe, we've seen the power of people acting together to make our world a better place. We will be reaching out to people around Australia asking for their responses to the Big Five questions so we can present them to our politicians and get a commitment to urgent action on these 10 threats to human survival. Help us show our politicians that the people of the country they represent feel strongly about these threats and want action. You can help by sharing these podcasts with as many people as you can, getting involved in a small group discussion on the Big Five questions discussed earlier that you can get from the Australia 21 website and provide us with your responses, and supporting our small crowdfunding campaign, which will start on the 29th of April. The campaign will assist us in reaching as many Australians as possible and show politicians that we care about our future and the future of those who will come after us. Find out more about the group discussions, the Big Five Questions and the crowdfunding campaign at australia21.org.au under Survival Matters. I'm Mark, your host from Australia 21, and thanks for listening to Survival Matters.